Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. This is our second episode on Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure. In this episode, I would like to refer to two different stage versions of the play that have been captured on film. One is a production from 2019 by the Royal Shakespeare Company with Sandy Grierson as Angelo, Lucy Phelps as Isabella, Anthony Byrne as the Duke, and indeed a splendid cameo from Tom Dawes as Master Froth. The show was designed by Stephen Lewis and directed by Gregory Duran. And since this is the Royal Shakespeare Company, we have the complete play, the full text, the whole cast of characters. The second production I want to talk about is by Cheek by Jowl. It's a relatively pared down version of the play. In other words, some scenes are omitted and indeed some of the characters. There's no Master Froth, for example, and there's no Elbow. Removing them removes a dollop of comedy but it also allows for a more intense focus on the Duke. The setting for this Cheek by Jowl production is modern times. The dominant colours are black and red. And where the Royal Shakespeare Company production is characterised by dark shadows, here we have a whirl of confusion and diffidence. There's a long opening sequence in the Cheek by Jowl production. No words, just movement. The cast from which the Duke slowly and unwillingly detaches himself is a kind of chorus, a kind of city crowd. And this crowd tramps around the stage wordlessly, looking for guidance, for some kind of direction. But there is no leadership in Vienna. This Duke is a diffident fellow. His movements are nervous. He's constantly looking over his shoulder. His facial expressions are fearful and confused. Clearly, he is not up to his function. He has no idea how to exert control. And we see very clearly in this opening scene that he is mightily relieved to pass the baton to Angelo. One of the first actions that he will take once relieved of the seal of office is to seek blessings, both from Angelo and from Friar Peter. At the back of the set in this production, there are three boxes with glass windows. It's like looking in the window of a sex shop in Amsterdam. And as the show progresses, we see people pinned up inside these boxes. One box seems to be devoted to sex, another to justice, another apparently to spirituality. We are perhaps, if you listen to Declan Donnellan, looking into the psyche of the Duke. 
This cheek by jowl production, which dates from around 2016, is in Russian with Russian actors. Designed by Nick Ormrod and directed by Declan Donnellan, it has Andrei Koyichov as Angelo, Anna Vardivanyan as Isabella, Alexander Arshitiv as the Duke, and a brilliant Alexander Matrosov as the Provost. I hope I have not butchered the pronunciation of those names too badly. On YouTube, you'll find a clip of the Cheek by Jowl director, Declan Donnellan, talking about the character of the Duke. And he says that in going into disguise and exploring the streets of his city, Vienna, the Duke is also exploring himself. Well, how much progress does he make? In that opening sequence, we saw a Duke who was the very opposite of calm and controlled and confident. And indeed, that does contrast with the more forceful, more media-savvy Duke who squares his shoulders behind the rack of microphones that we see at the end of the play. Clearly, at least on some level, progress has been made. Another suggestion that uh, Declan Donnellan makes in that YouTube clip is that Barnardine and Angelo can be understood as representing two sides of the Duke, the unruly Barnardine side that he has sought to quash and ignore, and which Lucio keeps hinting at and indeed exaggerating, and on the other side, the puritanical Angelo side. In the Royal Shakespeare Company production, Barnardine is played very capably by Graham Brooks, in what I would describe as a more traditional manner. He's a big, joyous, unruly block of humanity with zero interest in theorizing and philosophy and church ceremonies, pure animal vitality. But there is only the sketchiest of connections between him and the Duke, in the Cheek by Jowl production, given how the director sees the relationship between the Duke and Barnardine, it's quite different. Barnardine at one point sits on the Duke's lap and he looks deeply and with a certain amusement into the Duke's eyes and then kisses him full on the mouth. The Duke is intimidated by this Barnardine. He wonders at him. He is attracted by him. It is a terrific moment. What you're hearing is that the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Cheek by Jowl productions of the play are quite different, but they are both marvellously watchable. They both have absolutely extraordinary moments. The visual environment of the Royal Shakespeare Company Gregory Duran production is late 19th century Vienna with coffee houses, with military uniforms, with newspapers, prostitutes walking up and down in revealing clothes. Kate Keepdown 
crosses the stage a couple of times with a big perambulator. There's a, a word that has gone out of fashion, a perambulator in which she trundles the infant that she bore to Lucio. The furniture behind which Angelo and Aeschylus sit is heavy, dark, solid mahogany. This is a play where most scenes take place at night, and in the Royal Shakespeare Company production, the lighting crew do an absolutely marvellous job with shadows, pools of darkness, and lattice-like light effects on the flagstone floor of the jail. We feel the dankness of the prison walls. We sense the constrictions weighing on the minds of the major characters. Yes, in this play, there is a lot of restraint. There is a lot of constriction, not just the moral restraint of Angelo or of Isabella. We see Claudio and Pompey being dragged off physically to prison. We hear of houses of ill repute being boarded up. Why has this sudden change of policy occurred in the state? Lucio expostulates that Claudio is to be executed for untrussing, for loosening his belt. And when Aeschylus takes Pompey to task for his lifestyle and says to him, Pompey, you are partly aboard, however you colour it in being a tapster, Pompey makes that marvellous rejoinder that anybody living through a cost-of-living crisis can appreciate. Truly, sir, I am a poor fellow that would live. The only moment of light and music and greenery in the Royal Shakespeare production occurs when we see Mariana in her moated grange. There is a lovely song sung very graciously, but the music comes to an abrupt end as the frazzled, frowning, fantastical friar shuffles in in his shoddy clerical garb. He's anxious, he's impatient, he's trying to maintain his very precarious hold on events. And as an audience, much as we appreciated this musical interlude, we realise how out of place a garden is in the atmosphere of this dark play. I would like to say a little bit more about the Duke, but first let's go to the heart of the drama. I'm referring to the confrontations between Isabella and Angelo in Act Two. Isabella is a trainee nun, perhaps in her mid-twenties. I think of her as being 30 because that makes her abhorrence of sex that much more determined, that much more chronic, if you like. She and Angelo resemble each other. They both recoil from sin. They both believe very strongly in their own purity. But Isabella, faced with the impending reality of her brother's death, feels something. And Angelo's cool and complacent replies drive her mad. She erupts in fury, and quite right too. The sentence that Angelo has pronounced on Claudio is obscene. 
Claudio loves Juliet. She loves him. They're engaged. The only reason they are not yet married is because they are still waiting for some kind of official paper. But their feelings and their commitment to each other are true and sincere. And now a new life is on the way. What kind of person, what kind of ideology would seek to kill this charming young man, deprive Juliet of her husband-to-be, and make their child an orphan? Isabella becomes angry, and as her speeches become more impassioned and combine in some way with her movements, she cuts through Angelo's carefully constructed theories like a blowtorch. How exactly she does this is, of course, up to the director and the actress to determine. This is theatre. So some combination of her physical movements, the way perhaps her clothes accentuate her forms, her words, her sincerity, her intelligence, and then, of course, the crucial moment of touch, the tactile dimension, when somehow her flesh grazes his and this ascetic man flips into lust and sexual blackmail. Like Isabella, Angelo is a person who is secure in his beliefs. He's one of those people who lives in the smug, complacent comfort of knowing that he is right and that any attempt to sway him is by its very nature fraudulent. He has read all about the sinful nature of man. He knows that the flesh is sinful and that it must be mortified. And indeed, in the Royal Shakespeare Company production, the actor playing Angelo wore a kind of self-punishment device, self-harming device made of metal. In English, it's called a silice. It's a metal chain with sharp points that you wrap around your thigh and those sharp points dig into the flesh. Just before Isabella came in to plead with Angelo the second time, Angelo unbuckles his belt, he pulls down his trousers and he removes this metal chain from around his thigh and we, the audience, can see the red pinpricks on his skin where blood has been drawn. This is a man who has literally buckled himself against sin, a man who disdains temptation. It is one thing to be tempted, he says, another thing to fall. He has never been attracted by strumpets, as he calls them. He averts his eyes from a plunging neckline. In the Royal Shakespeare Company production, as Isabella becomes increasingly incensed by Angelo's cold logic, she says to him, Go to your bosom, knock there, and ask your heart what it doth know that's like my brother's fault. 
if it confess a natural guiltiness such as is his, let it not sound a thought upon your tongue against my brother's life. Now, on that line, go to your bosom, Isabella walked quickly up to Angelo and placed the flat of her palm on his chest. Boom! Her hand is on his chest, her eyes and face centimetres away. Angelo's defences were already shaking. The effect of that touch is to collapse them. His pulse speeds up. His sensuality is awakened like a storm. This is a powerful but a restrained approach. In the cheek by jowl Russian production, the physical interplay is more intense, more dramatic, and indeed it culminates in attempted rape. Before that... At one point, when she thinks he is going to pardon her brother Claudio, Isabella grabs Angelo's hand and kisses it passionately, tugging at his forearm. And at another moment, she climbs onto the table behind which Angelo has been sitting and beats her hands against his chest. You know, this type of interaction is meat and drink to a good director. And then, of course, comes that speech that I love. Isabella says that if human beings were able to command thunder the way that the Roman god Jupiter commands thunder, then we would have the sound of thunder all day long. The heavens, she says, they know when to leaven severity with mercy. They direct their power at the strong oak tree rather than at the weak myrtle. But man, proud man, that's a different story. But man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he's most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as makes the angels weep. Thank you, Kyla. This term, glassy essence, has troubled commentators. What does it mean? For me, it refers to the Christian belief that man's nature has an element of the divine. Man's essence, his soul, is glassy because, like glass, it reflects the light of the divine nature. And the essence of that divine nature is grace and mercy. This is a play that contrasts the power of severity with the power of mercy. The God of the Old Testament was a God of retribution, but the New Testament is about God sending his only son to the world to pay off the sinful penalties that man has amassed since the beginning of time. As Isabella says, why all the souls that were were forfeit once. 
and he that might the vantage most have took found out the remedy. The remedy in both the political and the relationship sphere is mercy and forgiveness. And to the extent that we have mercy and forgiveness in this play, they are largely due to the Duke and also, of course, to Mariana and Isabella. But the Duke is the deus ex machina. He is the stage manager, the person who rushes around in the background, pulling strings, frantically trying to resolve all the thorny issues that have arisen as a result of his indolence. And he succeeds. Somehow, he is able to help Mariana overcome her solitude, to overturn Angelo's cruel abandonment of her. Somehow, he is capable of preventing Isabella from being forced to have sex against her will. Somehow, he is capable of preventing a judicial murder. Somehow, he gets a husband for Kate keep down to ensure that the rent is paid. This is truly a remarkable play, but what is the feeling that we take away from it? Well, I've been watching it for many years, and I can only, of course, speak for myself. For me, one feeling relates to the fragility of justice, the fragility of the whole social order. The Duke went missing before the play began and the problems in Vienna became chronic. Another takeaway for me is the danger of ideological certainty, the danger posed by those people who know what is best for you and who will decide ethical questions for you, like abortion, in your stead. Once again, the resonance with today is striking. And another takeaway for me is how important luck is. Yes, the Duke beavers away in the dark, setting things to right, and he does appear to rescue Vienna from the ulcer of Angelo's corruption. But it is only the extraordinary stroke of luck of having Ragazine die at just the right time, this Ragazine who just happens to be the spitting image of Claudio. It's only that that allows the Duke's stage management to triumph. And when the Duke reasserts his power at the end, yes, it is a welcome change from the tyranny unleashed by Angelo, but it is not very comforting because the Duke has shown himself to be such a quixotic and such an undependable personality. And then there is, of course, the realm of personal relationships. Measure for Measure ends with a flurry of weddings like a Shakespearean comedy. The first couple, of course, is Claudio and Juliet, and this is a, a marriage that we can believe in, even if the mood at the wedding reception is likely to be less joyous than it might have been. No doubt Isabella will be one of the guests at that wedding, 
But for me, one of the most moving moments in the Cheek by Jowl production was when Claudio was finally freed and Isabella began to rush towards him and he moved away from her. He was not willing to embrace her. He cold-shouldered her. Not easy for him to forget that she valued her chastity above his life. The next couple is Mariana and Angelo, and the Cheek by Jowl production made me believe that this relationship, despite its appalling backstory, could succeed because Mariana wraps her man in a torrent of warm sensuality. If Angelo can simply let it lap over him like a great rich sea, then perhaps he can be saved from himself. As for Lucio and Kate, keep down. Clearly, this will not work on any serious level. And then, finally, there is the Duke and Isabella. In the Cheek by Jowl production, Isabella is shocked by the Duke's proposal of marriage but ultimately she allows herself to be swept up in the nuptial dance that closes the play by contrast the royal shakespeare production ended with an image of isabella frozen in horror and frankly who can blame her the Duke that I have seen on stage is a stranger to frankness. He has never been able to relate to anybody in a human way. Just think of that moment early in the play when he casually announces to a heavily pregnant Juliet that her lover is to be executed the next day. And when she reacts in horror, says an awkward Latin blessing and scurries off. Think too more intimately for Isabella of the way the Duke plays with her feelings about her brother in order to appear all-powerful at the end and make points that his PR team can exploit in the next electoral campaign. To come back to where we began, the life removed did not work well for the Duke. He had even less confidence in himself as a man and a ruler at the end of those 14 years than he probably had at the outset. He doesn't understand his sexuality. He doesn't know how to govern. He doesn't know himself. He doesn't know how to relate to other human beings. Lucio was right on the button. He saw that this fantastical duke of dark corners was a strange, cold and complicated man, that he had crotchets in him. The duke never gets our buy-in, so how can he expect to get Isabella's? <laughs> 